A day of voting coming to an end. No dancing was planned, but the men gathered and the performance was powerful and intense. It seemed a reflection in sound and dance of the optimism expressed by Tokelau's leaders. The Ulu, or leader of Tokelau, Karesa Nassau, was confident of his predictions of participation and that the outcome would favour greater independence from New Zealand. I'm very confident that the majority of people would be voted yes this time because we did put in a lot of time and efforts during this exercise. So I'm sure everybody understands the whole process and it's not like the first one we had in 2006. We didn't have enough time to promote this. But within five days, the Ulu will be standing on his home atoll of Atafu, thunderstruck, delivering the results. He had to be helped to make the right announcement. The percentage of registered voters who voted was 88.3%. The number of voters was 697. The number of invalid votes was 5. The number of voters that agreed with the proposal was 446. The number of voters who rejected the proposal was 246. Thus, 64.4% agreed with the proposal. The amount of votes required was more than two-thirds percent of the valid votes cast. Therefore, the proposal was approved. Not approved. Was not approved. Was not approved. So why were the predictions so wrong? Could anyone be blamed? Was the holding of a second referendum rushed? And if so, why? I travelled with the ballot boxes, politicians and officials to the speck in the Pacific to watch the vote, hear the result and learn more about the influences involved. Tokelau is a unique territory and one of the most remote places on earth. The whole nation consists of three atolls many hours apart, whose closest Pacific neighbour, Samoa, is 500 kilometres away. The whole land area amounts to about 12 square kilometres and its highest point above sea level is roughly 5 metres, leaving Tokelau extremely vulnerable to sea level change and altered weather patterns. But it's faced many difficulties in the last 150 odd years. In the mid-19th century, the particular decade that was catastrophic for Tokelau was the 1860s. First of all, two of the islands accepted Christianity. Almost immediately thereafter, there was a dysentery epidemic that carried away a number of people. But worst of all was what are called the Peruvian slavers, who, in fact, significantly depopulated the three atolls and caused a sort of turnover completely of that political system that had existed. So from that time on, virtually the three islands became autonomous polities, one of them completely Protestant, one completely Catholic, and one a mixture of the two, and that mixture was fuck awful. That religious context is set out by Judith Huntsman, an honorary professor at the Department of Anthropology at Auckland University, continues in the atolls today and still plays its part in local politics. But how did Tokelau end up under New Zealand's care? In the later part of the 19th century, Britain declared Tokelau a protectorate, and that was all very fine and dandy. The difficulty was that nobody could get there to find out what was going on very easily. In uh, 1916, 
Tokelau became part of the British Empire by being included within the Gilbert and Ellis Island uh, colony. After the Second World War, New Zealand became responsible for the then Western Samoa, and Britain was happy to hand over administration of three tiny remote atolls, which eventually became part of this country. Because of its isolation, there has never been any sort of governor living there. And although the role goes back to 1948, Wellington's direction of Tokelau has been seen as light-handed. New Zealand is the administering power for Tokelau under the United Nations decolonisation process. That person has the overall authority in terms of relationships between Tokelau and New Zealand. It's important to recall, however, that over about the last 10 or so years, the powers of the administrator of Tokelau have been steadily passed back to Tokelau. They've been devolved back to Tokelau's assembly, which is known as the General Fono, and also to the Taupalenga, or village councils of the three atolls. That's the current administrator of Tokelau, David Payton. He describes the present situation as one where his role is set by law, but the power rests with the government of the territory and the leadership of the three atolls. Tokelau has, along with no soil, virtually no economy. While various plans have been spoken of to develop its fisheries, handicrafts and the like, it's likely to continue to be largely funded from New Zealand for the foreseeable future. The most recent agreement sets aside $45 million for Tokelau over a three-year period. But as David Payton explained as voting got underway, the money may come from New Zealand, but the decisions come from Tokelau. The government of Tokelau, the Council for Ongoing Government and the General Fono took the decision to hold the second referendum. New Zealand has supported their right to do so and we're very pleased that uh, it's taken place after a process of preparation which probably is as good as any could be in similar circumstances. The other external player in the group is the UN. In the early 1960s, a special committee on decolonisation was set up to help implement a declaration which states that all people have a right to self-determination. The committee, also known as the C24, reflecting its original membership, now monitors a list of 16 non-self-governing territories, including Tokelau. Some say exerting a subtle pressure on governments to rid themselves of their colonies. It was in February last year that Tokelauans were asked for the first time if they wanted greater self-determination. After a no vote that surprised many, it was felt important to take the issue back to the people while it was still fresh in their minds. But in the run-up to the most recent referendum, all the players, the UN, New Zealand and Tokelau's leadership, came in for various levels of criticism over the running of a second poll. Ioani Teo and Yuta Tinielu broadcast three times a week on Wellington's Access Radio. The capital is home to the biggest Tokelauan community in this country. In New Zealand as a whole, there are more than 6,000 Tokelauans, compared with around 1,400 who live in Tokelau itself. These two men say they've written to the leadership on Tokelau many times, outlining their concerns about the referendum, but say they've been ignored. 
Their concerns cover the rush towards a second referendum. They also question the transparency of administration on Tokelau, the lack of development plans and the guidance being given by the leadership of Tokelau. The attitude of our leaders, we think they should show an attitude of tolerance and understanding about these issues and about the fears and concerns of ordinary people to look at these issues, whether are there any relevant uh, points that need to look at rather than making very harsh, uh, quick decisions. Yuta Tinielu says after being ignored in Tokelau, they have instead made representations to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee looking into New Zealand's relationship with South Pacific countries. The men argue that the gradual change in local government structure at home, placing the focus on village councils, was only finally put in place in 2005. A referendum a year later was too rushed, let alone a second 20 months later. Ioani Teo argues that decision by the leadership was partly driven by the agenda of the UN Decolonisation Committee, which he believes wished to enhance its position by successfully getting Tokelau off its list of non-self-governing territories. When they announced another referendum so soon after the first one, I think we, we, were, we were quite disappointed because uh, of the lack of respect by the political leaders uh, to the wish of the people as expressed through the referendum. You'll never probably see this happening in any any democracy because uh, people will not allow it. And the only reason I think why this has been allowed to happen is because people cannot speak up because people don't really understand that they do have a right to express their view. Now, we express our views from here, but no one over there can take uh, notice of it. He believes the interest and enthusiasm for changing Tokelau's status lies not among the people, but among the leadership. They are the people, really, who I think will stand to gain a lot under uh, self-government. What sort of things will they gain? Well, of course, they enjoy almost a total, absolute power at the moment. They get away with a lot of things that you normally don't expect them to get away in a proper democratic society. And if they do go down that track and being on their own without the uh, someone looking over them. You know, you can imagine what will happen. The submission to the Select Committee also asserts that New Zealand has long sought to improve its reputation by getting rid of any suggestion of being a colonial power. That's an argument that finds a sympathetic ear in John Hayes, national spokesperson on the Pacific and a former senior foreign affairs man himself. The Foreign Ministry here in New Zealand got the answer it didn't want last time round. Um, essentially, our international lawyers are of a view that New Zealand should not be on the list of countries in the UN's decolonisation committee. And the way to get around this is to remove Tokelau into the situation at the moment where it is technically a colony, um, even though it runs its own affairs day by day, into a situation where, we, where it can become self-governing and free association with New Zealand. Now, the Foreign Ministry in its wisdom did this with the Cook Islands and then it did it with Niue. Um, I think that we're overlooking the impact we've had by creating that situation. The impact has been, in the case of both Nui and Cook Islands, and we're seeing it now in Tokelau, is that people have packed their bags and left. And that isn't good 
for the Pacific community and it's not good for the culture of the Pacific community because actually it puts the language and the stories and the traditions at risk. He argues that funding from New Zealand ends up providing more benefit to some than others and those others choose to leave. But Karasa Nassau, who currently holds the rotating position of Ulu, which passes between the local atolls on a yearly basis, describes these criticisms from the expat community as unhelpful, ill-informed and unfounded. People back in Tokelau know exactly what they need, what needed to be done tomorrow and the future. And it's about high time for us to uh, have another status. And we need to, to be on our own. You're looking at the situation of Tokelau, there are about 10 times more Tokelau and so forth than what we have back home. And I don't believe our lives should be run by the overseas people. Against this background, the first of four days of voting started in Samoa for those Tokelauans there due to work, health or study commitments. The referendum's administration officer cast the first vote to be followed by a seaman working in the port of Apia. He hadn't voted in the last referendum and despite the extensive voter education program since then wasn't too sure of the issues. And uh, I didn't read the book, I didn't, this is my first time to see the book. Another on carpentry training hadn't expected to find himself voting again so soon. I was surprised that they were having another one so quickly. So. But a government employee also on training was confident interest was much higher this time round. I think last time was there was a failure there it was only because hardly anybody understood what was going on. But this time oh, there were more of awareness programs. The representative of the UN Committee on Decolonization, Papua New Guinea's ambassador to the UN, Robert Icey, downplayed any suggestion that New York was keen for a particular outcome. It's important, but I, I think it's more important to look at it from the perspective of talk allowance as to what, what they want. And um, the, the, the committee's interest is that the, the territory is listed and um, there are certain procedures that we need to observe in order to facilitate the will of the people, which is going to happen now. But um, importantly, the, the committee has been charged to oversee the territory, obviously in tandem with uh, New Zealand. It was then onto the boat. The ballot boxes under police guard, the ULU, the administrator, UN representative, observers and monitors, and referendum officials. The trip was more than 24 hours. Tokelau, a deeply religious nation, had already held one week of prayer. And the Monsignor travelling on board offered more prayers at a Sunday morning service, impressively accompanied by the ship's Samoan crew. Make our Sunday prayer. Monday. The first votes cast in the atolls. As those on Whakaofo steadily arrived in the village Fale or open-sided meeting house, the Faipuli or local leader, Kilue O'Brien, told me of his aspirations if the proposal was supported. Priority is the school. They had to put some new building for the school. The other one is the airstrip. I think we, uh, we need some airstrip because it's so isolated. Those supporting the proposal often talked of better services, such as the all-important new boat to improve the trip between Tokelau and Samoa. 
But these things are already covered by New Zealand funding. What a yes vote would have opened up was access to international funds such as the Global Environment Facility to help with areas such as the development of solar energy and biofuels, crucial areas for all Pacific nations. Members of the local organising committee were buoyant. This time around I think people are more aware and more informed of of those uh, questions they had. So uh, I think it's going to go the other way around this time. (laughs) But among the voters in Whakaofo there was still a sense of caution. To me it's a bit too early to have the referendum again uh, because we had one last, last year and then I don't know whether people are prepared for the next one. But it was time for ballot boxes to be put into aluminium barges to be ferried along with officials and officers back across the reef. Collapsible cardboard voting stations, voting papers and rolls. It was all passed back up onto the ship for the overnight sail to Nukunonu. Another beautiful hot day and drinking coconuts are offered as we wait for speeches. The local leader, Faipule Piotuya, who was the Ulu during the previous referendum, told me that the leadership had developed plans for Tokelau's future. We have the constitution to govern ourselves inside and we have the treaty to govern our relationship with New Zealand. I have been in, in the government for more than 12 years. I had the confidence that if we change the status, this will help you know, develop Tokelau better not only in our relationship with New Zealand, but uh, with our relationship with the outside world. The cardboard voting stations have been unpacked for another day and set up in the local council offices, overlooking a lagoon edged with coconut palms. Proceedings are being overseen by police officers in white tonginga, or a uniform that consists of pith helmet, shirt with epaulettes and a traditional wrap. Two observers from the UN, along with voting officials, take it in turn to staff the operation as voters trickle in throughout the day. Another good turnout, only one or two voters missing. But unlike during the first referendum, there was no official farewell, no singing or dancing to see us on our way. Everyone on Nukunonu was pleasant and charming, but there was an absence of any sense of excitement or celebration. The boxes, papers and paraphernalia were packed away again. The last day of voting was on the home atoll of the Ulu, Atafu. But unlike the visit in February last year, the canoes were not sent out to greet us. Women from the village were not lining the beach to sing the visiting party ashore, nor were the dignitaries carried to dry land, sedan chair style. This was the atoll whose leader had voted no last time. It was also home to a divided community. It split over the return of the pastor several years before, who'd left the atoll 15 years earlier after confessing to sexually abusing his then 12-year-old stepdaughter. The welcoming prayer was delivered by that same pastor and the hymn was led by his wife. A slowish day of counting. Men from the communal work gang are chivied in to vote after labouring all day to unload the boat. 
And again, voters expressed caution about further freeing the ties with New Zealand. I still think uh, Takelau isn't ready to face the whole big world, the greater nations. It's a small country. Then the final ballots are cast, voting is closed and the counting begins. All try to keep their faces impassive, but the news is a huge disappointment. The Prime Minister, Helen Clark, speaking on checkpoint within half an hour of the result being announced, acknowledged that some would be feeling shattered. I think it will be disappointing for those in Tokelau who've worked very, very hard for this outcome. But there was quite deliberately set by them a threshold of 66% support. Now, the failure to meet it means that uh, a third of people have not been prepared to go along with it. So I think it is a time now for some reflection in Tokelau as to when the question should be broached again. And meantime, there's a lot to get on with, with upgrading services and continuing to improve life on the atolls. That low-level feeling of disquiet among voters that this might not be the right time to seek greater independence is put into words by the Prime Minister. I think it's the natural caution which comes from being a nation of 1,500 people in one of the most isolated places on earth, accessible only by boat, uh, even on a fast frigate. The nearest atoll is 24 hours sail uh, from Apia, and the others are several hours further apart uh, again. So it's hard building a nation across that sort of environment, and one can understand that people feel pretty vulnerable. They feel uncertain. From New Zealand government's point of view, we have made it absolutely clear that for most practical purposes, they are operating now as they would uh, if they were self-governing and free association with New Zealand. But I think the association with New Zealand is of such long standing and the association with New Zealand and Britain before that uh, came because of the dreadful vulnerability of Tokelau in the 19th century that people are very conscious that this is not a simple decision. It's one that needs to be debated a lot. This comment is a synopsis of many of the big issues that appear to have influenced the outcome of the vote. But local politics seem to have played a part as well. And while atoll by atoll results are not available, it appears Atafu and its split community again played a crucial role. The New Zealand administrator David Payton implicitly acknowledged this when he told me there won't be one single cause behind the lack of majority support. If you took a poll across the electorate now and asked people why they voted the way they'd voted, a lot would have to do with issues other than the question on the ballot paper. The comment was very similar to that made by the former administrator, Neil Walter, when speaking about the first referendum. They were getting mixed messages in one village, and in the second there was a certain amount of local village politicking going on, which I think slightly hijacked the referendum itself. That was certainly the view of the Executive Council and the General Fono Tokelau's 21-person parliament. Since that time, the community in Atafu has built a huge church. The entire community, supporters or not, were levied by the village council for funds and required to help in the building. While no one would talk openly about the issue, it seems likely that those opposed to the pastor before would feel further aggrieved after being forced to pay and work on a building they would never use. The rejection of greater self-determination may well have been an opportunity to dissent, to show opposition to the local elite, whatever the question on the ballot paper.
The community certainly absented itself from all referendum-related activities as senior figures gathered for a glum evening of post-result speeches. Despite his best efforts, the Ulu failed to get any traditional dancing either that night or to farewell such high-level dignitaries. The previous Ulu, Pio Tuya, was careful as he gave his reaction to the vote outcome the following morning. I think uh, if we uh, do our homework properly and uh, try to see uh, the situation in each one, I think there must be some political turmoil within the setup. So I think that is why some people are reluctant to, you know, to, to say yes. And so therefore, I, I believe we need to do our homework properly and you know, make sure we run the, you know, the, the government in you know, the best way possible. In discussing the way forward, the General Fono has resolved to think about how it can get those who oppose self-government to contribute to planning the future. And in the days following the vote, it was decided to take the issue to the villagers for further discussion. One thing that won't change is Tokelau's place on the UN's list of 16 non-self-governing territories. On the boat returning to Samoa after the referendum, I asked Papua New Guinea's ambassador to the UN, Robert Icey, if Tokelau would still feel some pressure from continuing to be under the committee's watchful eye. Was the message that the C24 committee should take from the result, leave us alone for a while? I think that will happen. Uh, the indications that certainly I've got from both the Tokelauans and, and representatives of the New Zealand government uh, that the they would like to have a look at the issue again. And I think, I think that's 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 a fair way to go. I, I don't think. Uh, my sense is I don't think the committee would um, object to allowing more time. Um, being on that list of 16 territories that the committee looks at, though, does that mean that one is constantly, as a as a nation, as a territory, that you are constantly going to be under surveillance, that you can't be left alone while you're on that list? There is a certain amount of interaction that goes on, and the interaction I, I would suggest to you is not. One way there is surveillance as, as such, but there is continuing uh, reporting that's done on an annual basis, and that gives the committee an idea of what's happening or not happening on the island. But in Tokelau's case, I think from a year-to-year basis, uh, the, the reporting is always something's happening, and that's that's positive. Uh, the end result will happen because a lot of other work will be done, and I, I think the second referendum does indicate that there's a little bit more work that needs to be done, and I think. The Tokelauans and the New Zealand officials have decided that that's probably what needs to be done, so maybe back to the drawing boards. That sentiment was echoed by Wellington-based Tokelauan Yuta Tinielu. That gives some time for the Tokelauan people to look at themselves, to consider themselves properly, and maybe uh, go back and find out the reason why they always say no uh, to these issues. Um, perhaps they should uh, explore other possibilities as well and look uh, deeply and carefully into them. Those other options mentioned by Yuta Tinielu include integration, which would mean Tokelau becoming more like the Chatham Islands. This is an option fundamentally at odds with the position of Tokelau's leadership, who feel it's time their nation took the next step forward. But whatever the issues that may emerge in discussions at village level in Tokelau and in reports in Wellington and New York, the Fano has made it clear, for the time being, there will be no further talk of any more referendums.